Hi, I'm Danielle Fetter. I'm Alexandra Lee, and we're the co-hosts of Partial View Podcast. Welcome back to Partial View Podcast. We're really excited to have you all back with us. It is the start of summer, essentially, and I hope that everyone's enjoying the weather at this point. We are also in the throes of award season, and so we did want to just point out that we are releasing bonus content on our Patreon for theater awards season. Our first two Patreon bonus episodes are out, so we do have teasers for them on our main feed, but if you like what you hear, please consider joining our Patreon starting at $5 a month for the full-length versions. We've got a really great guest for you today that we're really excited about, and I'm going to let Danielle go ahead and introduce him. Hi, everyone. So... We are here today with Zach Raffio, who is the founder of Broadway Beat, which you have definitely heard me and Alex yell about in past episodes. Two of my friends and I, who have a group text, will send each other Broadway Beat links and just be like, give them a Pulitzer. Like, (laughs) what? We're a three-person Pulitzer campaign. So (laughs) Zach is a writer and comedian and the founder and editor-in-chief of the theater-centric satire site, The Broadway Beat. He is a contributor to satire sites, The Hard Times and Hard Drive, and co-hosts the free monthly variety show, Crucible, the first day of every month at Bushwick's Pine Box Rock Shop. And we are so pumped. Hey, Zach, welcome. Hey, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. This is really exciting. This is different from, I think, other guests we've had. And we're really excited to get into the nitty gritty of sort of, I don't know, content creation, the internet meets theater. A little bit of like theater journalism landscape kind of stuff. Yeah, I would use the word journalism uh, lightly, like sort of. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. um... Both for a satire site using it lightly and like honestly using it lightly for all theater sites <laughs> as we'll get into yeah, yeah. De- definitely not like uh, a ronan farrow uh no conversation no. tonight not Unless, even a michael uh... paulson <laughs> <laughs> now if i knew who that was we'd be in business <laughs> times reporter theater like arts times reporter so we start with uh, just sort of what's something that you've been reading or what's something you've seen or been listening to that you've just really been enjoying? Um, I think the other two. I don't know if either of you are watching it. I have heard of that. I have not watched it yet. It is on the list. I've heard it's so good. I feel like I've always loved like I love the first two seasons and I was a big champion for it when it was on Comedy Central in its first year, which is like I think a network that doesn't always support its like new shows, even when they're really great. So then it went to HBO Max, which is now, of course, Max, which we're all calling it and all on board for. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And- <laughs> Smart choices all around. Yeah. I think we all said, that's that's good. Um, yeah. So it's on Max. And I think the third season is just doing, like, incredible things. I mean, speaking of satire, it's a satire of the entertainment industry, but also, like, fans of every sector of entertainment. Um, I feel like... All the time when I watch it, I'm like, they're personally insulting me, but it's not. It's just like, that's how, you know, across the board so many of these actions are. And they're just so in tune with it. It's so great. Um, So the other two has really been my, I'm trying to push that because we need nine more seasons of it. I love that. I will bump that to the top of the list. (laughs) I've been so slacking on TV lately. (laughs) I think it's like a crucial American text. Oh wow! Wow, high praise. You've piqued yeah. my interest. I'm a I'm a prestige TV keeps a running log of everything person, and so you just really got me there. Made me really want to sit down and watch it. Yeah, it's something else. It's, okay. Yeah. So wait, are, you know what? Let's is, just are, watch it. <laughs> are all the seasons on Max now, or just the latest one? Um, season three, new episodes come out every Thursday. Yes. So. That's ongoing. I don't know how many episodes it's going to be total. But the first two seasons are on Max. They're on Max. Okay, great. Good to know. Yeah, so you can. And they're they're short. Like, I, I think they're each, like, 10 episodes yeah. in, like, a half an hour. So you can bang through them. Okay, great. Wonderful. Great for viewership. Not so great for uh, Writers <laughs> Guild members. 
in many yeah. rooms. Shout out to the strike if that's still happening when this episode is released. Uh- yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I even I'll see the credits for the show and it'll be like I never understand like how it's all delineated, but it'll be like written by so and so, then like two staff writers. Yeah, and I always think that's yeah. Interesting. My understanding of how that works is that like the showrunner will assign an episode script to one particular writer, mm-hmm. but the whole room is involved mm-hmm. with like breaking the story and like punching mm-hmm. up jokes, yeah. and not oversight, but like lower level collaboration on it and i guess like where my confusion comes in is that i've seen other shows where it seems to be like a larger room but this is like there's two staff writers and then written by normally chris kelly and Mm. the other creator's Mm. name i don't know it seems like just like a very unique writing situation on that show in particular Mm -hmm. interesting Um, and there might be like a bit of like an auteur side to it where the creators write the vast majority of episodes and they have some support correct me if i'm wrong i we're just going on about the other two now this is this is the an other two podcast now but is it set in new york do they film in new york are they east coast they, based? it is set in new york and they film in new york That's they filmed okay. a lot in long island city this season okay um okay. i think a lot at silver cup because i i work near there and i would see the signs last mm-hmm. year okay mm-hmm. cool uh, what about you, Alex? So tonight, I just watched the 11th episode of the third season of Ted Lasso. Are, are you guys going to be spoiled for this if I mention it? I don't was watch that it. Was that yesterday's? Yeah, this was yesterday's. Okay. I'm caught up as well. You're caught so. up. Okay, great. And specifically, they had a really great couple of minutes where they shouted out Nora Ephron, who I just think is one of the best writers we had in the 20th century. Such a voice, such a character. And they have a scene where the soccer team is watching You've Got Mail. And it's like two characters are talking during the movie. And then Coach Beard just looks over and goes, shh, Nora Ephron. And it killed me. I just loved that little tribute to her on one of my favorite shows, which I'm so sad. It looks like they might be uh, ending it next week. I don't think we've actually gotten confirmation from Apple about it, but... Can I tell you my assumption? Yeah. What they're going to do? Yeah. It's, it feels very British. I think that it, the series will end next week, and I think we're going to get a movie as a sort of series oh. finale, because that's a very British TV thing to do. Mm. Um, because it it's felt... I, I thought the season's... I felt like the season's good. Um but it does feel like they're really racing to wrap some things up. Mm-hmm. And I think they want to give themselves a little breathing room, hopefully. Yeah. Unless next week's episode is two and a half hours. It, uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, I don't know. I was about to say, no, it's not. <laughs> um, but that's Mrs. Maisel ends tomorrow. And they are yes. the regular length, I heard. So. Oh, interesting. Yeah, right? Basically, four of my favorite TV shows are ending in like the next week. And I'm seeing Taylor Swift, and I don't have emotions <laughs> for all of this happening. Yeah, I just Alex, don't. I'm in the same boat. <laughs> Secession, Barry, Maisel, and Ted Lasso. Exactly, are those, the Th- four? those four. Those four yeah. are all ending. Those four, and a little bit of an extra insult. Do you watch Yellow Jackets? Yes. Because that the season finale yes, is Sunday the season too, finale. which I'm like. All right, at least there's some hope there, but it's like a big chunk of my TV watching is going out the window. I'm also, that's when I'm going to the concert. So I'm going to have to go around like this because I don't want to be, I mean, I don't care as much about Barry and Yellow Jackets. Well, I care about Yellow Jackets, but I really don't want to be spoiled for succession. Oh, yeah. So stay off Twitter. Yeah, I I can't do it. I can't do it. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, Nora Ephron, my birthday buddy. Love you. Love that you got a shout out on one of my favorite shows. I recently got back from a trip to L.A. I was in L.A. and various locations in Southern California last week. And while I was there, I saw a couple really great comedy shows. I saw Naomi Ekparrigan at the Elysian alongside. uh, She also brought up Pat Regan and Hannah Einbinder from Hacks. Oh, my gosh. And I had the best time. It was so good. And then a few days later, I went to the podcast Love It or Leave It. They record weekly at Dynasty Typewriter in LA. And I've seen Love It or Leave It when like they've toured and done shows in New York, but it was cool to see it like in its sort of home base. And they had some fun guests, including uh, Tig Notaro and uh, someone else from Star Trek, which I don't watch, but Tig and the other Star Trek person did a really funny segment 
with just Star Trek trivia, which is great because Tig, even though she's on the show, knows literally nothing about Star Trek and barely knows anything about her own character. And (laughs) (laughs) the other guy is like a huge Trekkie. So it was just the funniest dynamic. I had a great time. And that one, at least, y'all can listen to if you are interested. Check out Love It or Leave It. Shout out to a podcast that needs no shout outs. They're doing fine. (laughs) (laughs) But should we segue in to uh, what's the like origin story of Broadway Beat? So I've been a a big theater fan my whole life. And two of my very best friends, their names are Haley Jane Rose and Edward Precht. They're also huge theater fans. And years ago, I started writing for a site named The Hard Times, uh, which no one's familiar with it. Uh, It's a satire site. Yeah, they're really great. They're they're mostly targeted around like punk culture and music, but they expand just like, you know, any satire site that has a target can cover broader things. So I started writing for them just as a fan of the site, and that really taught me how to write satire and how to be concise with my jokes and a lot of just trial by error. And it made me just a better joke writer, a better comedy writer, and a better just standard writer, just knowing how to get to the point quicker and how to structure things well. So being a big theater fan, I, I, you know, was speaking with Haley and Edward and thinking like, do you think this is something that people would be interested in? Like uh, a Hard Times and Onion, a reductress for theater specifically? Because in my mind, theater, it's a niche, but it's a big niche and a very passionate niche. And I kind of sat on it for like many, many months because I was like, I don't know if I'm the right person to do it. Maybe it doesn't feel earned. You know, all those kind of human like don't do this fun thing you want to do because for dumb reasons. And I remember Haley saying like, well, I don't know if, you know, you may not feel like the right person to do it, but no one else is doing it and you're the person with the idea. So be the person to do it. And I was like, okay, cool. I'll try it. So the first few months, it was like primarily myself writing the majority of articles. We had a few people kind of immediately show interest. Um, The Hard Times editors who are just really great people, they were like definitely, you know, blast out to all the writers that you're looking for writers if you want so that was a great resource we got Mm -hmm. some people involved Mm -hmm. right away but after about like six seven eight months is when people started to i think notice it a bit more and that's when we were able to expand our writer pool some more so yeah i mean it really came from just melding those two worlds of the kind of newfound love of satire that i found with the hard times and the longtime love of theater and seeing if they work together Mm -hmm. yeah that's awesome. Like, what were the early days of this site like in terms of, like, response or traffic or any of that? Like, because I feel like I found it pretty early, but I'm also, like, way plugged in to the industry in a way that is, like, disturbing. So <laughs> I think one of the best ways to describe it is that it definitely took a while to see, like, there'd be little bumps here and there. And I also learned along the way how best to communicate things so early on for example it would be like if i posted the article to twitter i would do the article and then a few spaces later i would do the link and then hashtag the broadway beat and that's just not like a shareable format Mm -hmm. you know people just want to share the headline as a joke they don't want to share this extra text that makes it look messy and weird Um, and that's something i just kind of learned on my own after a while being like oh this isn't clean this isn't the best way to communicate it and once we started tightening that up everything becomes more shareable. Instagram, a lot of my formatting was weird. I would use like inconsistent fonts sometimes. Like I just was kind of like learning because I didn't know like all those sort of like really important but sometimes overlooked details of putting out work. So once we tightened up the branding, once we made it clear what a Broadway Beat article looks like on Instagram, once we, you know, for a while, um, it's always important for me that like the writers get the credit and get, like make it clear who wrote articles. I think that's important, especially because we pay very little just because that's the nature of our site. Mm -hmm. So for a while I was doing the writer's names and handles on the actual graphic. But again, that's not as shareable because people are then sharing like a joke and the name of a person they don't know and the handle. It's just, I think psychologically, it's just kind of strange. So once I kind of learned that and tightened it up, I'm like, okay, now I say written by handle in the caption early on and tag the person that's, you know, kind of a way to make it accessible and make it more fun to share while still giving the person their credit. So things of that nature, those are two very specific examples. Mm -hmm. But I think once we kind of learned how to make things shareable and how to make things about the joke, people started to kind of get it a bit more. 
Mm-hmm. So I, I think the early work, I think, was good. Um, I just think we weren't communicating it well at all. People really do overlook, like, the social media aspect. And I think because my day job is in social media and marketing mm. and communications. And so many people just simply don't realize, and this is maybe speaking more to, like, the corporate world than, like, individuals, but people really don't understand how much work goes into it. And you'll ha- you'll see a social media manager job listing, and it's actually, like, five different jobs. It's like they right. want you to be a graphic designer, a copywriter, an SEO technician person, a data analyst, and, like, you know, it's it's too much. Again, like, the, I think the content and the work has to be really good, but it also has to be communicated mm-hmm. properly, which, mm-hmm. again, is something that I learned over the course of the first year. And I'm still learning. We're still making yeah. changes. I'm still trying to make things accessible, like putting – we're just starting to put image descriptions mm-hmm. in the text because mm-hmm. I'm just kind of learning how useful that is. Yeah. So things of that nature, like, again, it's all adapting, too. I mean, social media changes totally. every time you Constantly. Yeah. So I think it's just, like, kind of learning where that point is changing mm-hmm. and trying to change with it. Yeah. It's something that's just occurring to me now, like, in thinking about how much social media change, how quickly social media changes, is the fact that sort of the format, essentially, of, like, a satire news site has really stayed the same. Like, The Onion's been around since 1996, Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like there is just such a consistent and like clear and understood way of doing that, that it's just like so interesting to me of all the things about the Internet and about technology that change every like 36 hours that there's something about satire that it's just like we found the thing that works and people enjoy it and appreciate it. And it has stayed that way. That's kind of how I feel about, and we'll talk more about like the connection between satire and journalism, but that's how I feel about good journalism, is that good journalism mm. is good journalism, and that has never really shifted. And I, and I think that with technological advances, how people perceive that journalism has shifted, and that makes them think that like the definition of good journalism versus bad journalism has shifted, if that makes sense. But it's always been the same, like, ethical principles at the root of of good reporting. I think it's both the way people perceive it, but also I think the way people perceive it has been influenced by the fact that all of the publications' business interests have had to change so drastically because of the internet that, like, the approach to journalism and, like, the approach to, like, you were saying, Zach, like, sharing out that work has had to change so much Mm -hmm. that it's like it's influenced how people receive it and so like what they expect and what they think it should be has changed i do see what you're saying though danielle graduate programs and kids who are just out of j school are focusing much more on video and telling a story visually than they are with the written word but there's been such a shift there whereas what you're saying with the with satire with the onion with with broadway b with things of that nature is that you still have like the key components of you know the headline has to be a joke it's going to be visual and then there's also going to be content that is also funny if someone clicks on that headline to read it although sometimes i think it's even funnier depending on the joke when the the whole thing is the headline like you click it and then they're like, there's no article. Like the joke is, that's the joke. It can be. We're done. It definitely <laughs> can be. I agree with that. But I think that's that's subverting like the expectation of what like yeah. it is when you click on an article. And that's sometimes like also just a result of time. Like yeah. if something really quick and breaking happens or there's something that's really at the service of a funny visual. We ran one recently when they announced that the Tony Awards would be unscripted. Mm-hmm. We ran just a headline that was uh, that they were going to add confessionals. That was great. Just yeah. the reality show graphic. Yeah. And, and our, the thinking was like, nothing's going to be funnier than the graphic of Brian Darcy James with the drag race confessional <laughs> background. So we don't need to write an article. People will get it was really just at the service of that visual. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know happens kind of across the board like sometimes the joke can just be the joke but I I think another speaking of like you know changing the way things are shared another bump we saw on the site in terms of visibility was when we started posting the full articles on Instagram Mm -hmm. oh Um, yeah interesting it's 
it's still a decision that I'm like think about maybe testing going back to like just the headline then have people visit the site for the full or maybe part of the article but our web traffic is always like really low and the ad space for a satire site let alone a theater satire site I know is always going to be very very limited so in my mind it comes down to like making it as easy as possible for people to interact with your piece and at the end of the day again psychologically now, as funny as a headline is, most people are not going to then click the link in your bio and go find it. Yeah, especially because, yeah, Instagram makes it so annoying to do <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah. Like, you can't just include a link in the caption that's clickable. It infuriates yeah. me daily. <laughs> like, I do it because, like, I, I want to support, like, you know, these sites. Like, mm-hmm, I, I mm-hmm. am friends with a lot of the Hard Times writers, so I will go read their pieces. But, like... I have a, a personal and like emotional stake in it. Most people don't, especially for our site. So that that's when I saw another one where people were actually reading the full articles. And it's always cool when someone will comment like a specific joke from like the sixth slide in or something, because that's how I know they're actually reading it. And it, that, that always means a lot to me too. That's yeah. really cool. That's awesome. All right. So everyone, everyone needs to go look at Broadway Beats Instagram, go to the final slide and pick their favorite <laughs> part. Just so. And yeah. or click the link in bio. Or that. And give them web traffic. Or that. <laughs> yeah. Lover's choice. Whatever you want to do. <laughs> you mentioned like the rapid response thing. Yeah. How do you sort of decide when to pull out all the stops for something like that? Like what warrants that in your mind? I will say that that as Danielle has sent me Broadway Beat articles over the past like year or whatever, my number one <laughs> comment is always, how are they so fast? <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, that's very, very nice. So it takes, it takes, I I was going to say some profound thing. Uh, It takes a village. Um, but I guess it kind of does because, um, you know, Haley and Edward, like the three of us, I, you know, I'm, we're the three editors and we're, they're really like kind of the brain trust of it. Like I bounce the majority of ideas off of them and vice versa. You know, we work through like finer details together. Sometimes the first idea is the best idea. I think that the drag race confessional, for example, just because it's top of mind, I, I, I might have been mine. I don't even know. But I think it was just like, hey, this is the take. And we like text our little group chat. And we were all like, yeah, that's it immediately. And I just hopped on Photoshop and it was done in like three minutes. So sometimes like it's just immediately that's it. Other times, so we do everything through Slack for our writers. Mm-hmm. Um, so writers will pitch headlines there. But we have one, a, a channel called Timely Headline Pitches uh, where if something comes up and we need to like get a thread going for people to start bouncing ideas off. You know, I'll start it there. And sometimes the first idea there is also the best one. Sometimes someone will come in, you know, the same way that Haley Edward and I immediately had the idea for the drag race joke. Someone else immediately has the right idea and they reply and we get it done. Sometimes it takes bouncing around. Sometimes it takes punching. Sometimes it takes hearing the ideas and being like, what are we all missing and getting it? So it kind of changes per article, but we try to be timely, but we also try not to beat ourselves up about it because we all, you know, we all have lives. And if, if we miss like, oh, no, we didn't make a spam a lot joke on time. It's like, it's all going to be fine. This should be fun. You didn't make a yeah. spam a lot joke in 2004? <laughs> no, we didn't Didn't make a spam a lot joke in 2004. Uh, yeah, because like I'm also thinking about in terms of rapid response is like the big thing. And I guess at a certain point, it stopped being all that rapid. But just the constant deluge of Leah Michelle funny girl jokes. That specific time period felt like get in or get out, mm-hmm. where it was like everyone's making these jokes. It was. It was such a moment. Yeah. So it's like, well, we got to try to be part of the conversation, but can we do it in a way that's like maybe a step up from a lot of the first? Like that's one where I think the first joke is not the right one. Right. Because the first joke there is about like, I don't know, like her being a, a jerk and stuff where I'm like, yeah, there's stuff there, but there's more to do there maybe we can try to think of like the next joke mm-hmm. in that line or something that was a fun period i don't i mean like i don't think anything on our end was like too too mean which was part of why it was a right fun no yeah. definitely not just also smart because because so many people outside of the theater industry were also talking about this i had friends right. who don't work in the industry are really not that in tune with what's going on, who were asking me my opinions about who should take over for Beanie in the show. And same, it was like coworkers. I had like three different coworkers ask me like, so wait, what's what's going on? I keep yeah. hearing all this like shit about Beanie Feldstein and Leah Michelle. Like what's even happening? I had to like 
use literally part of an all staff meeting to like debrief people <laughs> on the situation. It was this rare moment where Broadway was entering the zeitgeist, which we haven't yeah. seen a lot of since Hamilton you know, made its big splash. And it's good drama. I mean, it's it's at the end of the day, take the Broadway out of it. It's celebrity gossip. Yeah. And that's ki- kind of always fun. Not always, but mm. often. So you just add that in. It's like, yeah, it's good juicy drama. Who doesn't love that? That's what Twitter's for. Mm-hmm. I think this would be a really good point to ask, you know, we're talking about like the Leah Michelle drama and things like that. What's kind of your philosophy behind like where you draw the line with satire? Like where it is too i don't want to say too mean because i feel like that barely scratches the surface but like where it is too much on on, on, on anyone's side if that makes yeah, sense. yeah because i would say like the thing i put a section of stuff that's like when a specific person or a specific show actually is the butt of yes. the joke like where mm-hmm. are you drawing the line there mm-hmm. yeah i mean in general we try not to punch down but at the very least we will punch across And what I mean by that is that we all grew up doing theater. We all love theater. Uh, Myself, Edward, and Haley work in theater as our day jobs. A lot of our writers do as well. So when we make fun of like, quote unquote, theater kids or stuff of that nature, we're making fun of ourselves to a degree as well. So while while we may be going like, not going after someone, but like, you know, making a a joke about people who staged or and take it too seriously or things like that, it's like, we're in that mix so it's not necessarily like making fun of someone from the outside. We're, we're kind of all trying to poke fun at each other. Definitely. Um, we are all recovering theater kids. Yeah. There's the uh, recent Broadway bound. This teen is loud. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Written by uh, Devin Wallace, who writes. He's, he's one of our most frequent writers like since the beginning, and he's, he's so smart. But yeah, things like that, like we're all those people. Um, and when it comes to like, specific shows and everything i mean we always try to make sure the take is you know at least fun but these are productions that have had millions of dollars behind them it's not punching down to make fun of a show that was poorly managed or did something offensive or weird or was bad to its cast and crew Uh, a show that closes like early or anything like it's very unfortunate and we'll make those points clear that like we don't want people to be out of work who had nothing to do with like a show's downfall but I, I'm trying not to sound like mean. These they're, these are not children. These are like v- people who mismanaged a lot of money. Yeah. And we're, the joke often also, to that note, isn't about the show closing. Like, I don't think we've ever done a joke that's like, haha, this show closes because that's yeah. not. No, definitely funny. not. No. Um, like, I totally agree with what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So So when it comes down to like making fun of, you know, specific shows and stuff like that, we just take that all into account that like, mm-hmm. I don't know, the take has to be right. is really the most important thing yeah like I'm looking the ones that I pulled out I was like you're made fun of like Laura Osnes and David Mamet and Neil Abute and which it's very funny to like list Laura Osnes (laughs) in that same category we have to think about the time too because if if Laura Osnes right now was like I'm I don't support the vaccine it wouldn't be as big of a deal as it was at the time totally so some of them are also like products of their time and reactionary to you know they fit inside a certain context yeah but yeah like it's not punching down to be like david mammoth's an asshole he is richer (laughs) than i will likely ever be and he will probably never see it because he is in a very Mm -hmm. rich big house uh and he can do whatever he wants he can have a play produced at any festival and the festival is honored to have it because he's one of the most well-known playwrights alive and he will refuse to have a talk back (laughs) Yeah, so like I don't see that as punching down, um, and he also does weird stuff sometimes. So I think that's where the the fun comes in. Where like it's not like he's just this normal guy too. He's kind of a weirdo. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, in terms of again, like the line, it's like you know, just making trying not to punch down, but punching across or up. And I, I even see things like making fun of some like playwright tropes and stuff. Like I, I sometimes consider that like punching across because it's just like these are things you know. You do certain scenes in college that you look back on. You're like, why was I doing that as a college kid and stuff like that? And it's like, it's not saying these plays are bad, but it's again, it's like the context of the time. And one other thing I'll just add, which I think is just like, I think a rule that a lot of like, I don't know, I I think it makes me feel better about a lot of things is that we don't quote someone unless they're extremely famous in our articles. 
because I think it's important to remember that like someone who's huge in the Broadway world might not be that much of a celebrity outside Mm -hmm. of the theater world. And that means that like, you know, Google results with interviews with, with them or pieces about them might be minimal. And I don't want someone to search, like, I can't think of it off the top of my head, but to search someone who's like a working actor and have them saying something crazy um, and have it not be clear that they are. So like, I'll quote, like, I'd quote Lin-Manuel Miranda or something because, like, it's not going to show up. And if it did, you'd be like, oh, this is That's really smart. Yeah. Exactly. Um, But. Yeah, it's like a lot of it I've seen, you know, there's a lot of articles where you're, like, referencing a public figure in, like, national politics. And that's just totally such a whole other level from theater. Unless you're talking about, like, Lin-Manuel Miranda, Sondheim, Andrew Lloyd Webber. Yeah, like, someone of that level. Hugh Jackman. Like, huge names Mm -hmm. we can do, but... Um, it's, it's like a rule of the site that if they're not really, really an A-list name, just make someone. And we get comments that sometimes that's like, that person's not in Bad Cinderella because we just like made up an ensemble member name. And it's like, yeah, no, that's the point. Yeah. Like that's, <laughs> like we, we know yeah. that was intentional. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, we, we did that. Yeah. Like going off of that, like, and like choosing when you do name someone even if it's not like a quote but it is sort of like clearly a satirical joke about that isn't like they're not the butt of the joke they're sort of just the subject like there was one that like Sutton Foster was cast as Wolverine or like choosing Brian Darcy James to be in the drag race confessional how do you land on like who's the funniest person to use here oh man I feel like if I had a few minutes I could think of the answer um Brian Darcy James is up there because he's, I think he's really great. Mm-hmm. And I think he's just kind of like innocuous, you know, theater actor, man. Like he just kind of like, there's nothing controversial to take away from using him in like a joke, but like no context we've ever used him in has ever been like, he's bad. Cause that's just not true. So it's like, I don't know. He feels just like easily malleable. Yeah. To he's very neutral. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He, he really adapts to whatever. Such um, a good actor. Really. I mean, I would like to <laughs> see great. any one of us do both Shrek and The Baker. I would too. That'd be great. <laughs> I would <laughs> love to role. play both of those roles. I'm excited. I'm going to see him in uh, Days of Wine and Roses. Oh, nice. Ooh. Curious how that is. A friend of mine from grad school is um, on the wardrobe costume team for that. Um, but I haven't spoken to her since like before rehearsals begun. Mm-hmm. So. Mm. I don't know. 90 minutes, no intermission. We love that. Oh, love it. We love a tight 90. Oh, my God. Please tell me you're going to a 7 p.m. show because that is the best. I'm I'm going to a 2 p.m. Sunday show, which. Also great. It'll be just fine. I'm getting brunch before. It's going to be. Yes. I'll be out of there by 345. You know, that courtesy 10. Also great. It'll be great. (laughs) Courtesy 10, five to get out. It'll be perfect. (laughs) So we're going to pause for a second and uh, have a little intermission chat with some housekeeping for the pod. So, as Alex mentioned at the top of the episode, our first two Patreon bonus episodes are out. We're recording this before the Tonys, but when you're listening to this, it will be after the Tonys. So, our initial introductory Patreon offer of getting access to our award season bonus content at $5 instead of $8 is technically over however we have decided that at any point if you sign up at the five dollar level you will still unlock this year's award season bonus content but future bonus episodes that we'll be releasing on a monthly basis will still be reserved for the eight dollar tier so please sign up if you want to support us at the five dollar level and you could still hear us talk all about the Drama Desk Tony nominations and our debrief of the Tony Awards, which will be coming out the week after this episode airs. So as a reminder, we start at $5 a month with our Thank You 5 tier. You get the bonus content on Patreon, bloopers, cut content, things like that. You also get to be on our Instagram close friends for the $8 in the mix tier. Uh, Our next tier up from that is our Equity Cot tier. $20 a month and we will plug your project during this little intermission break. Uh, Whether you teach 
kids how to play instruments, if you have an Etsy shop, anything like that. We want to promote that because you're helping us and we want to help you. And then finally, for $100 a month, we do have our comp offer, which is that you get everything from the past years, but also we will treat you to a show and talk about it. So check out our Patreon. We are Partial View Pod on Patreon.com. Join away. Thanks so much. Okay, back to the episode. So we're back from intermission, and I think uh, we're going to sort of back up in a way and uh, define satire for you all. So according to the Oxford English Dictionary, satire is a work of art which uses humor, irony, exaggeration, or ridicule to expose and criticize prevailing immorality or foolishness, especially as a form of social or political commentary. And at first glance, it makes you wonder, like, where does theater satire fall into this? But it also means that inherently all satire is or maybe should be political on some level. And so I guess starting from that first, like, Zach, for Broadway Beat, do you have like a specific goal in mind with this like your approach to satire for the site? Not that I've really thought about it too clearly before right now. Um, I guess like, I feel like our goal is, is always just to, we want to make funny jokes. And I think like, like hearing the definition of satire, I'm like, Ooh, that sounds way more serious than what we're doing. Uh, <laughs> where, you know, I like will make fun of things. And when things come up that are, you know, worth kind of like having a stronger take on or examining in the theater world, we will, do that but there are times where we just want to like make a joke about the king kong puppet dating audrey too or something like that which in one way you say is satirical about like the way tabloids cover celebrities like things you know it it fits other definitions but i don't think there's like necessarily like a real goal behind it besides just like i don't know i never wanted to stop being fun to do and work on yeah i think there's like a really clear balance between things that are pretty much just like silly and fun and things that are more pointed criticisms of the industry or things that like bring in like national politics into them. Well, Zach, I think you're, I think you're selling yourself short a little bit. And let me tell you why. I think that theater and theater kids and the theater industry, we all love it so passionately and it is all so important. And in a lot of ways to us, we, you know, you can joke that like who gets the lead in the high school musical felt like life and death, but you know, it felt like life and death. So undermining how we think about the art form and the structures, but in a playful way is I think actually really, really important. I'm not saying it's on the same level as, you know, poking fun at say, you know, Donald Trump, but I think it's actually really crucial for us to have that lens to remind us, you know, why we love being a Broadway fan, being a worker in theater, anything like that. And like doing all of that, despite the fact that your dad doesn't get it. Yeah. And yeah. these, and that's kind of hearkening to what I was, I said at the beginning, which was like, it's a niche, but it's a big passionate niche. And it mm-hmm. defines a lot of our lives and, and those aspects of our lives and interact with things that are not theater-based. People move to New York, not even necessarily to do theater, but because they love theater and want to be around a culture that supports it. And when yeah. you look at certain things, like the, the sad thing is that jokes about how expensive and inaccessible Broadway tickets are, we can tell that joke a million different ways. And until that changes, we're going to be able to do that. So that's mm-hmm. like one thing where it's like, yeah, we will keep making fun of that because it's crazy and there's always like little ways where it changes and little details just to keep mining but that's like an overarching problem so things like that are things that we can continue to like really dig at whereas like you said not getting cast as the lead you know during a time period where like theater is your favorite thing and you're very passionate about it and you're already vulnerable because you're like 16 or 17 and like everyone's insane at that age (laughs) <laughs> yeah, those things are important and personal and, and meaningful. So 
I think both sides are, are, are good, but some are a little bit more like, you know, critical of something and some are just important, but fun, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is it like a balance that you consciously try to maintain or is it really just sort of like, this is silly and this is good, we're publishing it. And then it's like, oh, something else happens and we're responding to it. Yeah, I think it's case by case. If something more serious happens or there's a, a stronger take on something, we also do our due diligence, I, I think, and hope to make sure that like those takes are, I don't want to say correct, because like it's hard to have an, a correct opinion, but the, the, the kind of take that we want to share on the site and like the details of that take too. I don't know. I, I wouldn't go to us with for like the hard facts on things because we're also like, reacting with the same information most people have yeah and i mean no hard facts yeah. like who's in the ensemble of bad cinderella <laughs> exactly like don't do not come asking us that information because we we could find it but we're not gonna tell you you we have um, google same as you <laughs> exactly like we're using those same resources has there ever been an article that you've published that has gotten like intense pushback <sighs> there's an article we had a few COVID articles that i think were again context like, looking back, if we posted them now, they wouldn't even be that relevant because we're obviously in a different era of the pandemic. But at the time, they were very, very timely, and things were obviously very different. And we would get, like, some pushback about even writing anything related to the pandemic. But then you go on Twitter, and everybody's feed is mixed with either serious updates and information or jokes because it's the time we're living in, and that's how people express themselves. And I remember thinking at the time, like, why do we get criticized for it, but your friend on Twitter is not like, we're not like an institution. Like we're an outlet because we pay for a website and have like, and gratefully have like, you know, a a small following at this point, but like, why is it okay for everyone else to make a joke, but we're not allowed to for some reason? Why is it taken more seriously when we do it? And I don't know, that was something that I thought was strange and didn't happen every single time, but there were times where people would be like, don't joke about COVID. And I thought to myself, do you comment that on every single tweet they see do you reply to every instagram story about when someone's like you know posting a picture of them out with a scarf around their face being like getting groceries nothing weird here do you comment and say like hey don't say anything cheeky about covid like i I didn't understand why we got so much like yeah attention i thought that was strange it was a weird time (laughs) that's what i chalk it up to like people are emotional i mean i was terrified mm-hmm. um so but i just thought that was strange I, I thought like why are we put in a different category of the way people are looking at this and there's one article that i'll probably never run again because i th- i think it's really funny and i i think enough people if we post it now would not get the joke it was large extravagant gorgeous bouquet wasted on ensemble member which is so mean um <laughs> but also there's been a lot of work to like highlight the work that ensemble members and swings do and how important their roles are so i think with that in mind the idea that it's just like a really rude but joke like capital j joke Mm -hmm. at the end of the day would be lost now so that's something that we don't like we have never like reshared it yeah you posted it to twitter i can see that i still think it's funny and i think that it's like I don't know. I think it's when it's like, we obviously don't mean it. Right. And it's like, the joke is actually more yeah. about like the cost of flowers. Yeah. <laughs> if you think about it, um, or just the way we looked at ensemble members before like recent events, yeah. before the pandemic, basically, which is when it's from, it's, it's, it's from like 2019. Yeah. Um, so I think it's like looking at it in that context, but also just considering, yeah, it's like a very rude joke, but pretty harmless, but Again, because of changing time, like, well, I'm not going to do it now because, like, it's different. So that was when we didn't really get pushback at the time, but we would if I posted it. Mm-hmm. Now. Yeah, I see that for sure. Yeah. And it's it's drawing attention to a shitty viewpoint. And you're pointing out that too. also that it's shitty. So it's like you, it's, it's riding that fine line. And it's expecting people yeah. on the internet to have nuance. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And like, and the article itself, like, it, it kind of, you know, it keeps heightening that and gets so over the top with how like rude it is toward the end that like you can tell it's we're kidding but again i understand that context changes everything but uh yeah long live that joke i think it's really funny <laughs> i didn't write that mm-hmm. one but I, I i still i still laugh at it it makes me think mm-hmm. of um one of the ones that i included on here as like one of the times you brought in national politics like particularly during 
the 2020 election because obviously there was so much happening, but that Biden and Trump spend their final days campaigning exclusively to theater swings because of a misunderstanding. <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> swing voters. And with like outside like you know things that have nothing to do with with theater. Again, these things are in the public eye. So mm-hmm. if there are fun, appropriate ways to bring them into our lens, we like to. But if there's like, I don't know, if there was like a tragedy of some kind, if there was like an earthquake somewhere where a bunch of people lost their homes, we're not going to be like, well, how could we make that about Beetlejuice? It was the King Kong puppet. Be, yeah, like that mm. would be like fucking sociopathic. So we don't, we don't do that. But if it's something that's like, again, like the presidential election, which again is traumatic in its own way, but it's different than like, people being immediately affected by something if it feels more appropriate to put it through a theatrical lens and obviously clearly public figures Mm -hmm. yes that too like we're not talking about like anonymous people who had their lives affected so like yeah i mean that the entire 2020 election period like even back to when like the primaries was something that we were able to play with a lot. I was just going to say that the idea of the presidential candidates mistaking swings for swing voters actually very much aligns with the Four Seasons mix-up for Four Seasons total landscaping. Yeah. <laughs> so that actually, like, it sounds like I'm, I don't know the publication date, but it sounds like you kind of, you kind of <laughs> hit the nail on the head there. Do you know um the actor John Larroquette? Yeah. Yeah. We, we ran one around that, it was, I think it was after the first debate between trump and biden um and it was either i can do either says panic john larroquette calling his agent <laughs> he, could. I, he could he could he do could either. yeah, yeah. kind of like <laughs> depending on which eye you look at him with he kind of looks like both and he could definitely play either so it's stuff like that where it's like it's harmless and yeah fun and brings it into the theater world do we want to dive into like talking about other theater journalism outlets and i'm curious if if you feel like Broadway Beat has any sort of place in that landscape or like how you view theater journalism in general, it's sort of like a pet subject, a little bit of like a pet soapbox of mine. Like I almost wrote my grad thesis on this and then had to pivot because of the pandemic. But the fact that to me, like there is no actual theater journalism that even the outlets that sort of like claim to do journalism don't really, or when they try to, like, for example, like, Playbill hired Deep Tran, and it's clear that, like, she wants to move them in a direction that's closer to doing journalism. Right. But as soon as they tried, like, an article was pulled because theater owners complained that it was too mean and that it made them look bad. The one about, like, the unruly theater. Yeah. Like, yeah. The, like, speaking to the ushers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then New York Times, like... Obviously, the New York Times, as a paper overall, does journalism. Uh, but there's, but the theater section, like the art section, it's really just sort of pay to play PR hits and like profiles of people to promote shows. So, and there's really a gap in like, it's sort of why we also launched this podcast, is there's sort of a gap in anybody really talking about issues impacting the industry in a more robust way it's like they're mentioned things come up Mm -hmm. in these interviews that broadway.com publishes or whatever but that's never the point of what they're doing or even articles that get killed after months and months of research because a couple stakeholders complain about it even if it's really well researched into like cases of sexual assault and things like that we all know what story you're talking about that got squashed. There's multiple is what I'm saying uh, as well. I guess I've seen and like really appreciated when you all have like, even if it's like this jokey way and satirical way, like haven't shied away from some of those things. And like the Scott Rudin addresses abuse allegations by issuing an apology bullet, <laughs> like that you're not shying away from and that those are the things that you are like, hey, like we do have a take on this. And we are going to say it. Are you hoping to like start conversations with that? Or like, yeah, just how do you think about all that? Yeah, again, I think it's all case by case, um, which I know it sounds like my catchphrase at this point. Um, but I, I think like, you know, it just depends on the article and the take. I think starting a conversation is good. I think making the information accessible is good. So people may not like 
we get a lot of comments, not always about like things that are necessarily dramatic, but being like, oh, I can't believe this is how I found out and stuff like that. So I think like communicating things, even if it's in a jokey way, that still gets the point across in like the finer details of the piece, I think can still be effective. But sometimes it's just like, you know, again, Scott Rudin like is a bad man. And that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. during that time period was like the talk of the town for the theater world and, and, and beyond because he didn't just work in theater. So I think it's weighing in like, okay, what's our take on this and keeping it, again, funny while also pointing out like, this is a bad man and we, we're not trying to like make up for what he's doing with a joke. Not that we have that power anyway, but we're not like playing off what he's doing while even though we're making jokes, mm-hmm. if, that, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's like there's definitely care that like who the actual butt of the joke mm-hmm. is isn't the victims. Yeah. Yeah. of his abuse. It's also those same like journalistic ethics I was talking about before. Like you're not going to misreport on a fact on something like that. And how funny that people are finding out actual things yeah. like, as if it's like truly breaking news on a satire site. I love Is that, that like the craziest kind of comment you guys get? Do you guys get like other crazy just like outlandish comments we get a decent amount of people who just don't realize it's satire i i am grateful that a lot of our readers are quick to correct them in polite ways which i like i don't ever want to be like it's a joke you idiot like they clearly didn't know that they're not dumb they just didn't understand what this was is there an example that you can think of because that was actually one of the things is like thinking about like the borowitz report specifically like that feels like a satire column that is like almost seems to be trying to pull one over on people and try to seem really realistic and disguise the fact that it's a joke. So like yeah. what what have people actually mistaken as real on Broadway? There was I don't remember what the headline was, but it was a pretty recent one where I think like a director in the piece said something or, did, or wouldn't cast someone for some, you know, insane reason. And someone was like the director said that they should be fired. This is ridiculous. And this happened in, and we, you know, let's say it was like Wichita or something like was where we made the city. They're like, this happened in Wichita. I had friends who grew up there. I'm going to let them know. And someone commented and were just like, it's satire. And they were like, oh, didn't realize it was a joke. Don't follow the page. <laughs> I was like, how'd you find it? Which again is fine. Hashtag Wichita. <laughs> one time someone commented. Yeah, exactly. So one time someone <laughs> commented something very similar and someone replied, it's satire. And they said in all caps, what does that mean? <laughs> it's like, all right, well, at a certain point, we can only help you so much. <laughs> there are certain articles there. It's like, I've found that you're referencing something very timely that's happening in theater, but in an oblique way that like you actually have to like really be following and know what's going on in the industry to even like clock what this article is about. And I wonder if that's like, again, like, I guess it's it's obviously like all of them, it's sort of on a case by case basis, but is it sort of a conscious thing to be like, mm, we're going to talk about this, but like not name names. Yeah. Um, I think our, our work is for people who are very interested in theater. Um, I also think there's different access points, just like there's different access points to everyone's theater history and th- and being a fan of theater. Like some people, their first show was Wicked. Some people's mm-hmm. first show was listening to their parents listen to the company cast recording. Like there's different access points. Some people had never seen seen a musical before Hamilton was on Disney+. Plus. They had never seen something that mm-hmm. was done on stage, not even in mm-hmm. person, just filmed on stage. So I think like knowing that there's different levels of people's interests and different things people are going to know. And that if you don't understand this article, you're going to love the next one. Mm-hmm. And understanding that like, if no one makes these specific jokes, who will? There are pitches mm-hmm. we get sometimes that are so specific. And I think to myself, like, there's probably only a handful of people that this is going to really resonate with. But those handful of people are going to go bananas over it. So let's do it. And sometimes those surprise me. There's been ones where I go in thinking this probably won't do that well and people love it and it has way more of a reach than I think. So as long as it's funny, I'm always willing to take that chance. I don't think we should have to like, I don't like over explain things because that just makes it a little bit less fun. And um, Mm -hmm. I don't know. I feel like I want to be trusted as a, as a reader when I'm reading either honest journalism or satire. So I think extending that trust back is important. And not explaining, like, here's yeah. what this joke is. 
you see yeah. Avenue Q was a music like <laughs> that's not <laughs> <laughs> and you know I feel like so many shows don't trust the audience so I was gonna say if you have to explain the joke something's not right and again there are jokes that some people just might not get and I'm yeah. fine with that they'll like the next yeah. one yeah. yeah what is your favorite thing that you've published that's really hard to say it changes all the time I feel like sometimes we get pitches where I'm just like that's my new favorite article <laughs> So I can't answer a definitive one, nor would I want to, because we have so many good writers. But I can give some recent favorites, if that's okay. Yes. Yeah, 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 totally. A recent favorite article uh, is written by James LaBella, and it's opinion. It's not immersive theater. It's a robbery, Uh, (laughs) which I really love because it just took me by surprise. Like, I did not see the ending of that headline coming. And I think I like barked with laughter when I first read it. I will say I actually know somebody who was calling a show and got robbed at gunpoint while calling a show once. Where was the show? This was like decades ago in Chicago. (laughs) So that that's that's just what that made me think of. Art imitates life. Yeah, seriously. Um, Some of my favorite pieces. So Edward, who's one of our editors, he always ends up in charge of like guides so like Halloween costume guide or like holiday gift guide. And he writes those sort of expansive oh. pieces. Um, and he's so good at them. And his Halloween guide, costume guide from this past year. is one of my favorites. One of the slides, I just went to a random one. Read Bernie. What you'll need, sensible clothes, dedicated friends. Wander around the party. Every so often have one of your friends look at you and go, oh, I didn't know Read Bernie was in this. Nice. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> That's so good. That was me when I saw uh, The Menu. <laughs> it's like, oh. The movie The Menu. Sick. <laughs> Read Bernie's in this. <laughs> one from uh, one of our editors, Alana White. This one, again, kind of timely because this is when this word kind of started coming into like the zeitgeist. But breaking, Orpheus actor accidentally pronounces it Uradusi. Yes, I like, remember that. And I was like, that's, that's so fun. Because mm-hmm. uh, at the time, that was like just being introduced as a kind of meme. So playing on that was really fun. <laughs> and the last one I'll point out was from last year. And it was exclusive. Lin-Manuel Miranda developing hip-hop musical based on the life of United States founding father Alexander Hamilton. Which was, I still think about the comments on it. Because it was so fun watching oh. people either immediately understand what we were doing. That we were making a very simple joke barely satire or people being like what what (laughs) (laughs) or people getting into the joke so many people would be like that's never gonna work and then just go like specifics (laughs) like into it be like oh betty's gonna try it at the public first yes continuing the bit i love yeah like it felt like everyone like i'm looking at it now there was like 164 comments and it was just people playing basically and it felt like there's a community of like hey this is a stupid joke what if we all hung out in here for a bit it's like um, briefly tumblr yeah, yeah. It, it felt like again it was a really simple one. it wasn't even an article it was just the headline but i was like it'd be funny if we posted this yeah because i feel like you're it's a little bit long and you're waiting for the joke <laughs> and then, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then it doesn't it for a yeah second. you realize the whole thing was the joke so i don't know I, i'm very fond of that one um and I, I think part of the reason I'm fond is because it was just so fun to see people's reactions to it. Yeah. That's really great. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah, I mean, our writers are so cool. Like, that's been probably my favorite thing about getting to work on the site is that I've met so many people who I just most likely wouldn't have otherwise. And I'm just, you know, they're all so cool and funny. And it's it's so we have people who have written one article and then we never really hear from them again, which is fine. Or we have people who pitch constantly and everything in between and it's it's nice to you know have something where like people are say they're a writer for us in their instagram bio Mm -hmm. or list us as a credit on their website like having any kind of credibility where we can do that to support someone's portfolio is that's cooler and more important than what i thought would happen when we started it how many like regular editors and writers would you say you have because you put out a lot of content so i'm just curious to know our slack has over a hundred Wow. Um, I'd say about half are consistent contributors. Some people will pop in every now and then. Some people like have were writers before we started the Slack and then just like never pitched once we added them to the Slack, which I'm like, I guess from a business angle, maybe they don't need to be in there when we're talking about like live shows and stuff. But Mm -hmm. at the same time, I'm like, what are they going to do? Leak that information to the press? I'd love to get some press. So... (laughs) 
<laughs> it doesn't really concern me too much. And they seem like nice people, so it's fine. <laughs> but yeah, so so I'd say, yeah, between 40 and 50, like, consistent contributors, and then others kind of trickle in and out, which is Yeah. Funny. Yeah, I noticed a recent one um, by someone I actually know. Oh, whoa. TJ Pfeiffer. Yeah, I oh, TJ's great. Dramaturged his musical when it was at Nymph, uh, R.I.P. Nymph, like <laughs> a few years ago. His show Abduction had a reading. That's fun. It was really fun. Yeah, he. I think he's relatively new. We um, you know, we accept new writers like year round. So if anyone's listening to this and wants to submit some pitches, please do. But we accept writers year round. But in January, we were like, oh, we haven't posted about it in a while like you know it's always on the website and whatnot we get people thankfully pretty consistently but we're like we haven't posted like in like a year and a half just like hey you can write for us here's how you do it so we did it and we got so many submissions i think tj was one of those like in since january we've added a ton of writers what i will say though is that within minutes of posting that we got a lot of submissions and i don't think we took a single one within 24 that came in within Mm. 24 hours because it was people who were just like first thought mm-hmm, which i was like yeah. it's not a race like yeah take a second so this is the advice like not just for our site because you know whatever but just in general like do a second draft yeah of things like take a look i always do it for myself too and if i submit to other outlets or like if i'm pitching stuff to the hard time sometimes i look at it again or something just the first draft's not always right so don't always just type it and hit send i think that's a life lesson yep check your work. i hang up and that's it yes <laughs> Life lesson. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One last question, because like, now you're talking about like the volume of writers. It's like, so the background to this question also is that I used to work for The Interval. If you remember when The Interval existed, I was their copy editor. And that website ended up having to shut down because it was just like completely unsustainable. Because one of the values of it, like one of the things that uh, Victoria Myers, who founded it, was really committed to was paying everybody who did anything. And so I'm just curious, like, that's such an ongoing issue with like journalism or like publications or anything like this in general is like making that sustainable. So I'm curious how you think about that. And not only like financially sustainable, but like so that you're not burning the fuck out sustainable. Yeah. I mean, I've only within the last like six months, you know, Haley and Edward and I for a while I was editing everything. And then, um, Haley came on to be sort of like the copy editor so just like you know catch typos hit publish once I set like the SEO and everything and then so for a while it was, it was more like producerial roles I'd say for for Haley and Edward and kind of like that brain trust but not as much day-to-day work and then as it's become you know more time consuming and again we the three of us have full-time mm-hmm. day jobs in addition so we've been able to delineate more so now Haley and edward are directly editing people's pieces and we go through all the pitches together and everything so i think that's been made it much more sustainable in terms of just like properly dividing up some of the work financially i pay everyone i set aside money every month and i pay everyone wow. a very very little amount i pay everyone five dollars an article we're upfront about that and mm-hmm. this is not, you know, we, we, we want to do something. We think it's important to pay people even enough for a load of laundry or a cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. And we do it. And if we get to a point where we can do more, then we absolutely will. That's like our first priority is to mm-hmm. be able to pay folks more for the work they're giving us. Yeah. So we're trying to, you know, figure out other ways to do that. Like I said, ad space on satire sites, let alone theater satire sites, is not going to be our bread and butter. No. We do live shows, and after mm-hmm. we kind of reimburse ourselves for paying the performers, the rest goes into paying our writers. And we're working on content for a Patreon as well, and just some other outlets there to see what we can do to, you know, increase what we can pay our writers and then have more fun from there. Because once we can get steady with that and keep it going, it opens up more doors. Again, just trying to think of some ways to like sustain it. Because again, like right now, like $5 an article, like I can make it work personally, but it'd be great if we could make that more. <laughs> yeah for sure it's like no like so much respect for even being like yeah this is something that like i can pull out of my own funds Mm -hmm. to make happen i think it's worth it like i think it's like it feels like an investment in like the site and our writers and relationships yeah for sure and again we posted on our website we're like we pay five dollars an article i'm not offended if people are like that's not worth my time that's okay Mm -hmm. right totally great so 
Anything you want to plug, Zach, before we go? Uh, yeah, just uh, read the Broadway beat, write for us, send us some pitches. Even if they're kind of like half ideas, we'll work on them with you. And also sometime this summer, check out uh, the Broadway Beat podcast. It'll be very fun, very stupid. And your Bushwick show? Oh, yeah. Uh, it's called Crucible. I host it with my friend Ethan Hardy. It's the first Thursday of every month at Pine Box Rock Shop. It's free and it's an hour. Those are my two big pitches for it. It doesn't take a lot out of you emotionally. So come down there. It's very, it's, it's very free and very an hour. What socials would you like people to follow? You or follow Broadway Beat? Oh, uh, the Broadway Beat. So at, at, yeah, at B-Way Beat News is what we usually use. Cool. All of it will be in the show notes for y'all. Um, and I don't know when I started saying y'all, but it's, it's <laughs> no longer ironic. It's happening. I like it. Let's keep it around. Yeah, this has been a really awesome conversation. So, Zach, thank you so much for being here. We did it. We solved American theater. We solved theater satire journalism, and in a couple weeks, we're going to solve something else, and I hope you'll come along for the ride. Bye. Bye. Any opinions expressed in this podcast are personal and do not reflect the views of our or our guests, employers, or clients. For more of our opinions and other theater-related content, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and pretty much everywhere else at Partial View Pod. You can also find and support us on Patreon. I'm on Twitter at Danielle underscore Fetter and on Instagram at Danielle.Fetter. Follow me there. And I tweet and post pictures of my theater programs and books at Alexandra D-L-E-Y. Till next time. Bye.